Hello and welcome to episode 78. As I am relocating with my family over the next few weeks, I'm not going to be able to prepare and produce my classic style of podcast that I've done. So in its place, I'm going to be posting some really fascinating classes that I've given in the past to a group of doctors on various topics of Jewish medical ethics. These classes are a drop longer than my normal episode length, but I think that they're really interesting and you'll enjoy them. In today's episode, we discuss the topic of patient autonomy and medical coercion. Does the patient always have the right to choose what they want, even when they're making a poor medical decision? And what can we do about it if that's the path they choose to take? Join me as we discover the fascinating story of Cassandra C., who the state of Connecticut actually took control of from her mother in order to keep her alive. Enjoy! Okay, so first of all, a very, very big thank you to the Benars, especially given the fact that this was put on them in the last minute. Nonetheless, they opened their house and allowed us to come discuss important medical ethics in their house. It's a, it's a tremendous, it's very much appreciated, and uh, thank you very much. So the topic tonight, uh, the, tonight was another, researching this topic was one of those, it's not logical outcomes, but you, whenever you read stories in the news, now you can read the more left-wing news, you can read the more right-wing news, Whatever you read always has a bias, that's how newspapers work. When I was reading this story specifically, it just came out extremely strong. I, most of my information I got from this story, I read through the Supreme Court documents from the state of Connecticut, what they put out. And the story you get from them, when you read their story, is like an entirely, just a totally different perspective in terms of which details they share and they mention and they don't mention than uh, you do when you just you know, read this scene in an article that I forwarded out, which I didn't, I didn't realize I forwarded an article. But you, you gain a whole new perspective. So just quickly give you the background of the case. Everyone's on the same page that we're talking about. This one, that's why a lot of doctors don't read anything medical in newspapers or magazines. Yeah. They know they It's interesting. I'll, I'll quote them later, but the, the main oncologist that was involved in this, I emailed him a few questions, just trying details I couldn't find out. And he, the first thing he wrote back to me is that if you're preparing a class on this case, whatever you do, don't read it, what it says in the media because everyone is totally misconstrued. And he sent me the link. Which I'd, already, I'd already seen it. But he sent me the link to the Supreme Court documents because he said this is the only, the only way to get the actual facts. So if you read through it, which is, it happens to be a fascinating story, the, the sequence of events with this girl. There was a girl named Cassandra. She wrote like Cassandra C. Her mother's name is Jackie Fortin. Her name is published, published, um, published publicized. And um, she developed a lump on the left side of her neck when she was 16. She went to a pediatrician and he didn't take the case. He referred her to... Someone else eventually was referred to an oncologist in Children's in Connecticut, in Hartford. And they, at first, looked at it and thought it would be, uh, be cancerous, so they took a basic biopsy of it. And it seemed to be that it was Hodgkin's lymphoma. They needed to be more testing just to know the exact what stages they had and certain more details because of this. Um, the mother, throughout this process of going to various doctors and the diagnosis process, and the treatment process, the mother canceled. She didn't show up to probably around seven or eight appointments that she had set. She didn't respond to any phone calls from the doctors, called them back. She canceled multiple appointments. She switched doctors without telling the first doctor which doctor she was switching to. Every possible way of avoiding treatment, she basically did. The, the girl herself, Cassandra, so she was, she's been homeschooled the past four years. She hasn't seen... She hasn't been in contact with her father since she was three. So she lives with her mom, and she basically just exclusively lives with her mother. 
And she has not so she's not a social butterfly. She's homeschooled. She's pretty, I guess I would say, a, a connected to her mother in all aspects and bends herself to her mother's desires. So her mother really controlled all the conversations with all the doctors. And throughout the process, I mean, we'll see the you'll see the extent of it. That there's actually at one point in time after she was already in the Department of Children's and Families in Connecticut, they they had her at the at the, at the witness stand, and they were asking her questions. Do you believe that you have cancer? Yes. So that do you believe that chemotherapy will work? Yes. And will you agree to do chemotherapy if we send you home? So Cassandra, under oath on the witness stand, said yes. I will consent to chemotherapy if you send me home. So they said, fine. So she went home. They started chemotherapy. She did two rounds of chemotherapy. And then she ran away in the middle of the night. She disappeared. They couldn't find her. The mother said, I don't know, disappeared. I don't know where she is. She wasn't at home. She didn't help. She didn't call anyone. And she was lost, basically, for a week. And um, at the end of that week, she came to her lawyer, and they eventually called and started the whole case again. But this was, part, that was the, this was part of the conclusion of the court that neither her mother nor her was responsible to make the appropriate or capable of making the appropriate medical decisions. If you, get the, if you see what's going on in the whole picture of it, she kind of pushed off treatment for around three or four months on a very deadly disease that's easily treatable. And uh, the daughter herself lied under oath. In addition, she was willing to take rounds of chemotherapy to get home. She just wasn't willing to take grounds of chemotherapy to heal herself. That was part of the main argument that allowed them to say she was not competent to be a mature minor. What? She, she, was, she was first diagnosed when she was 16. Her birthday, I think, is in September. So she was 17 during Moses. This started last year, like August. And this past April, like two months ago, was when she finally was released from the hospital free of chemo. Interestingly, free of cancer. Interestingly, um... Uh, even now, I didn't see her social media page, but I read articles that said even now she's still upset about the fact that she's 100% cancer-free right now, and she's so upset about the fact that they forced her to do this, and that all the, it just, the, whole, the whole story is very strange. The mother the whole time never really accepted the diagnosis. She didn't believe she had cancer. She didn't believe in chemotherapy. The whole, the whole story is like a, a strange story. Either way, the question is tonight, that's the gist of the story, and what happened as a result is they put her under the, under the Department of, Child, of Children and Families in Connecticut, basically locked her in a hospital room, forced her to do chemotherapy, which the chemotherapy they have, we'll get more into details later, but it, was, it has a 95% success rate, the specific thing they were doing, with an 85% non-recurrence after five years, which is heavily successful with minor side, uh, side effects, which we'll talk about. So the, 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 the story was pretty crazy, but at the same time, they took her away from her mother, they locked her in a room, and they... And they um, forced her to do chemotherapy. So the question is tonight, that we're going to be our main source of discussion is, what would the, the terrorists say to do in such a situation? What's the Jewish perspective on this situation? And I think we could really break it down into, I guess, four, four subcategories. And that is, the most basic question is, how does the terrorist view her personal autonomy to choose or not choose to take life-saving measures when the, the odds and the stats are all clearly there of how helpful it will be to take it and how disastrous it will be if not. The doctors said in the case that it will be just about guaranteed death within the next two years if the cancer goes untreated. So the question is, one, personal autonomy. Question number two is let's say that the answer to that question is that she does not have a good time. She is obligated to take care of her life and heal herself. 
But anyway, she says, I don't care. She says, I'm not, I'm not going to take care of myself. I'm not going to do it. Do we now have the ability or the right or the obligation to go ahead and coerce her or force her to take this treatment? Right? Even let's say, the first question is, is she allowed to decide that or not? If she's not allowed to decide that, but she decides anyways, because everyone has free choice, she chooses the wrong thing to do, are we allowed to now step in and say, well, you're doing the wrong thing, I'm going to make you do the right thing? That's question number two. Question number three is, she's 17 years old, so is that considered a minor? In Jewish law, if we were approaching this case, how would we treat her, right? 17-year-old is legally a minor in America. How do we take that in Judaism? And question number four is, let's say she is a minor, or the equivalent of another minor in a different case, when there is room for autonomy, which there definitely is a place in Jewish law for autonomy, who makes these choices for a minor? Right? Is it the parent's obligation? Is it the rabbi's obligation? Is it the doctor's choice? Who gets to decide uh, medical decision-making for a minor? Anyone else has any other questions that they want to throw out there? In terms of the ethical aspects of the case, the floor is, the floor is open. That's all. The main four questions that I broke it down to. Don't do it. <laughs> I don't know Yiddish. But, um, okay, so let's, let's start from the top. Why, why do we ever have an obligation to save someone? Where does that come from? Why should I care if someone else wants to kill themselves? What, what does that have to do with me? So there's two, there's two mitzvahs in the Torah. There's two verses explicitly in the Torah that refer to saving a person's life. There's one positive commandment, and there's one negative commandment. The negative commandment is in Leviticus 19.16, don't stand by idly as your brother's blood spills, right? Don't stand by when your brother's blood is spilling. Explicit verse in the Torah to, take, to teach everyone, it's not a verse exclusively for doctors, it be true for the layman as well. You have an obligation, if someone's choking in the middle of the Heimlich, you have to, you have an obligation to do that for them. Um, the second verse is a verse of Deuteronomy 22.2, this is actually an interesting one. The verse says, and you shall return it to him. The verse is actually discussing the case of a lost object. When somebody loses an object, there is a positive commandment in the Torah to return that object to him. The Talmud in Sanhedrin learns not only is there an obligation to return someone's lost object, but if you have to return a physical possession of his, for sure you have to return his health to him. And you for sure have to help him restore his health. And the Talmud actually learns out of this verse from the obligation of finding a lost object that, not only, that you actually have a positive mitzvah, you shall return to him, a positive commandment, to help someone sustain their life and heal them, which again, is not exclusively for doctors. This positive and negative commandment is true for everyone. Everyone who can save a Jewish life has both a positive and negative commandment to do so. Now, where does the doctor fit into this? So the doctor fits in like this. There's a third verse. This verse is in Exodus 22, sorry, 1921. And the verse says that two people are fighting, one of them hurts the other one. The Torah says that the one who hurt the other person has to pay his medical expenses. And the Gemara learns from here, Talmud expands from this part, and this relates from the, the, the verse says, and you shall heal, you shall heal. So it seems that the word is extra. Why does it say extra word here? So Talmud learns, from here we learn the light, there's a license and allowance for doctors to practice medicine and to heal people. Right? There's an additional allowance for doctors to heal people. Now the question is, what exactly, what exactly is this different than anything else? So the, the, the Code of Jewish Law says that there's an obligation, that there's a, since the Talmud teaches us that there's an allowance for doctors to practice medicine, that now translates, translates into the obligation to save people. Meaning like this, 
You all here know a lot more ways of saving people's life than I do. I maybe could do a few things to save someone's life. Someone's bleeding to death. I could put a bandit on him. Right? There's certain basic things that I'm capable of doing. Most of you probably know a lot more ways to save someone's life than I do. So now if someone comes across, a, if we come across a person sitting on the side of the road and he needs a certain surgery and you know how to do that or the doctor knows how to do it and I don't. So I have no obligation to do it to him because whatever, I, I shouldn't touch him because anything I'm going to do to him is just going to damage him more since I don't know the proper medical care for him. A doctor who has an expanded license to heal that anything that he knows in the medical field that he can do to help this person, he is now obligated to do for this person. So the, the two positive and negative commandments for, that apply to everyone, the doctor really has an expanded version of that. Now the question is, what exactly did the Torah teach us when it tells us the doctor has a license to heal? Okay, doc, what, why would the doctor not be able to heal? He knows how to help someone, someone's dying. What's the, what's the problem with that? And are there any limitations to it? If there's some special allowance, it sounds like the default position was don't heal. And the Torah said, no, don't worry, we are allowing you to heal. So in that allowance, is that allowance all-encompassing that anything you want to do to heal the person you can? Or is it limited to maybe certain situations? So there's a, a huge debate amongst the medieval commentators exactly what the Torah meant when it gave this permission, this allowance. One of the less quoted commentators, because it's a little bit of a wild idea, but I think we'll try to develop it a little bit and maybe make more sense of it, is that of the Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra lived in the end of the 11th century, just to give you a frame of reference, and lived around 80 years, so well into the 12th century. So the, Ibn Ezra has a scholar, he says, you might have thought, or maybe in his mind it's really true, that if God makes you sick, so there's a certain act of providence in that. God made you sick. Why should I intervene and heal you? Maybe I should leave that up to God again to come and heal you. What should, what are you why are you coming to the doctor? So says Ibn Ezra, no, the, the verse is teaching you that you're allowed to go ahead and intervene and save this person, or help this person. Says Ibn Ezra, fascinating thing, however, this is only true by external wounds. You're only allowed to save someone or help heal someone. I just took away all your guys' jobs, right? Only allowed to basically by like, a, I don't know, cut, maybe a broken bone if it's called external, only by an external wound, by an internal wound, there's no such permission in the Torah to try to heal a person. And this is really a, a radical statement because if you look in the Talmud, there's, there's plenty of stories of different sages and doctors that healed people with seemingly internal ailments and there's other actual prescriptions of medicine which we don't rely on the Talmudic medicines but that talk about ingesting things for <coughs> stomach issues and all these different things which seems to be very, I mean, hard to fit into this understanding of the Ibn Ezra. So the question is, really, what does he mean? So there's an idea I saw. Um, that, I don't know if this is a, the right answer or not, but there's a much later commentator. This one, his name is Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Yaakov Emden, he died in 1776. So around, lived around 80 years before that. Rabbi Yaakov Emden said, he's, he's not discussing this topic. He's discussing actually the, he's one of the biggest sources on this topic of coercion in medicine. He's discussing coercing someone to take treatment. But we'll ignore that for now, we'll come back to that later. He says a very interesting statement. He says that when you're coercing someone for medicine, you're, only, you're not allowed to just do what you want. It has to be a medicine that is a known medicine, it's like been experimented on, we know this is a good medicine, and you're 100% confident in the diagnosis as well. It's only for a known diagnosis with a known cure that you can then potentially coerce for medicine. And he calls that, and he says, for example, an external wound where we know exactly what the problem is 
and we know how to treat it, that you'd be able to coerce someone for. So I see people wanted to suggest, I, want to, I think this is the most logical idea also, that the, what the Ibn Ezra is teaching us is that the Torah is only giving us an allowance, he's providing us an allowance to, to um, take m- medicine that we know works and apply it in a situation that we know the issue to heal the person. Meaning when the Ibn Ezra says you can only heal external wounds, not internal wounds, what he means to say is, when you know the problem and you know the cure, you're then allowed to go ahead and treat it. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's outside of the body or inside of the body. Nowadays, in today's modern world, we know very well the inside of the body and how it works, and we know how our medicines, through trials and stuff, we know very clearly how those work also. So in our world nowadays, it would seem that the doctor would have the obligation, this is why we all can keep, continue to work, we have the obligation to treat people since we can, since we know the... The, the problem, we can diagnose the problem properly, pathologists like Mike, and we can solve the problem through, through um, data that has been tested and, and we know very well. Now, how does this translate back into application? So there's really always, there's two perspectives here. The patient themselves is no worse than any other person. If I have an obligation, a non-doctor has an obligation to save someone who's dying, for sure that person themselves is no worse than me, and they also have that obligation to save themselves. They really have even more of an obligation because there's another verse that says, and you should safeguard your soul very much. So a person has an extra obligation to take care of himself in addition to the fact that he's no worse than anyone else and he has to save a life if he can. Now, if we follow through logically, that would include seeking out medicine and it would include seeking out any medicine that's, that uh, is proven to work even if, let's say, you don't want to, right? Because you have an obligation to heal yourself. There's a license and allowance to take medicine that includes any known item that will cure you. So therefore, from the aspect of the patient, the patient is obligated to go take this medication, this treatment. Now, there's also the perspective of the doctor. The doctor has a patient here. The patient is not being compliant. So now the doctor has a personal obligation. If this doctor knows how to give chemotherapy, I couldn't give that to this patient to save her life. But if there's a doctor that knows how to do that, that now becomes the doctor's obligation to fulfill that for this patient, right? So that's kind of the, the setup of the question here, and the background information is basically from a perspective of what's the patient's obligation, what's the doctor's obligation. It's interesting um, if you... I have, I have a quick question. Go for it. So, does the patient have an obligation to listen to the doctor? Because there's many times when a physician says that you need this treatment, and they go, oh, I've been doing homeopathic uh, so that, stuff. So it's interesting. In this case, in one of the videos I saw of, of her mother's interview, her mother went all over the media gamut interviewing herself, talking about this problem. They didn't have, in this specific case, any plan at all of an alternative therapy. That wasn't even any, ever part of the argument. The argument was, we would like to look into an alternative approach. There, there was no, and this is after she had this for almost six months and being diagnosed with it, and they still hadn't found, they weren't actively actually searching anything. Whether or not you could take an approach of homeopathy is really a class into and of itself, and it depends on what form and what you're doing and if there's any evidence or any societal, really more societal acceptance of being a, a real approach in medicine which normally is based on whether or not the government recognizes it as a valid form of, of practicing medicine. That's kind of how, in, in a nutshell, it comes down to. But in this specific case, 
That wasn't even what they were saying. They were saying that, yeah, we're going to look into it, we're going to find something else to do, but they didn't even come with any other approach of, of um, what they're planning to do. This is in um, contrast to American law. In American law, you, you don't have... I, I wrote down the, the quote from... from uh, there's a case, McFall versus Shimp, which the court said, quote, common law does not require one to render life-saving assistance. That is a, a ruling from the Supreme Court. And the other a ruling from the Supreme Court that regarding the patient's obligation, now I'll have to keep in mind because here she's a minor, so it's different. But in the famous case of Cruzan versus the Missouri Department of Health, so the, the court ruled there that the United States Constitution would grant a competent person a constitutionally protected right to refuse life-saving hydration and nutrition. Right, that was a quote from the su- Supreme Court of America. So clearly in American law, you have the right to choose basically to starve yourself. I don't know why that is legally different than any other form of suicide, which is illegal. But you are allowed to resist even nutrition and hydration, which is not even chemotherapy. It's a much more basic, essential aspect of life. But in American law, you are allowed to. That's just to point out the contrast here. In Jewish law, you're not allowed to say, I just don't want to eat anymore and kill yourself. You're not, you have an obligation. God gave you your body. You're entrusted with taking care of it. You have an obligation to heal yourself, not just to eat and to drink, but also to go do chemotherapy. If this chemotherapy is proven to work and to help you, and you have a life expectancy of less than two years, and you'll most probably be completely cured without it, you have now that obligation of the patient to go ahead and, and do this. So, in our specific case, that would, that would translate into, Cassandra seems to definitely have the obligation to go to a doctor, and if she's considered a minor, her mother would have the obligation to, the part of the obligation of feeding your children is also keeping them healthy, and keeping them healthy and making sure that their medical needs are taken care of. We spoke about this last class by vaccination also, that's part of the parent's obligation towards, towards the children. So it would be her obligation to seek the appropriate um, treatment to deal with her deadly disease. Now the question here is, is she wasn't doing that. So if she's not doing that, what, what do we do? So as an introduction, the, we mentioned this before, but it, it plays a big role here also, and that is that the, the definition of a minor in Judaism for all laws across the board is how old? Right? 12 and 13. For a girl, 12. For a boy, 13. Bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. That's the becoming of age. Once you are 12 for a girl, 13 for a boy, your business transactions are legal. You can testify. You're considered an adult regarding testimony in court. Whatever action you do, if you damage someone, you're held liable for damages you do. You're considered an adult once you're 13 years for a boy, 12 years for a girl. So in the simple sense of making medical decisions, the, you would seem to be also that age once you are 13 for a boy and 12 for a girl, which would mean that in our situation, Cassandra would be considered an adult regarding the Jewish perspective. Now, whether or not it makes a difference if you're an adult or not, in this particular case, it doesn't really make a difference. Because since you have an obligation to take care of yourself, that obligation is the same for an adult and the child. Even though she's technically an adult, she would still have that same obligation of making sure that she is that she's taken care of. It's interesting in the in the, the in the dialogue in between her and the doctor, the, the main doctor, the head of uh, hematology and oncology and children's in Hartford's name is Dr. Isakoff. I'm not sure I pronounced that right. 
And um, in her, his conversation with her, she expressed her opinion to him that, you know, this isn't really fair because I'm 17 and a half. If I were just six months older, I could just do what I want and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell me anything. And so he responded to her, and statement, he responded to her, technically you're right, we'd be having a very different discussion if you were 18, but I would question your competency with the decision you're making, even if you were 18 the same way. Meaning, the, which in American law makes a difference because once you turn 18, now you have the autonomy to choose it. But in terms of the right or wrong decision, it doesn't really matter ethically, the right or wrong decision, whether or not you're an adult or a minor. In the Jewish perspective, which is always um, is a, the, the basic contrast between the Jewish perspective and the secular perspective, and this specific point is more of a general approach to, I would say, rights versus obligations. The, the Jewish perspective on really everything, you don't find anywhere in the Torah the concept of a right being mentioned. There's no right to education, there's no right to healthcare, there's no, there's no rights in the Torah. But the Torah always discusses the obligation. It's an obligation of parents and of society to ensure that the children are educated. It's not the children's right to be educated, it's the obligation of society to ensure that they are educated. Healthcare is the same way. There's no right to healthcare. There's an obligation on the doctors and on anyone who can heal people and restore their health to do what they can to help the people of the, of the community. As opposed to, in America, where the focus is always on the individual's rights, what I'm allowed to do, when you get focused on your own rights, then that, that whole perspective just basically changes to whatever you personally would like, rather than what there's some other opinion that can be, I guess, objectively ethical or unethical, it changes to what you view as being fair to yourself. So that's where the, the main point of differentiation. So, just to summarize, Cassandra definitely is making the wrong decision, and she should be taking chemotherapy. Now we come to our question as doctors, as what do we do about that? Am I able to now coerce her to go ahead and take chemotherapy? Or am I saying, okay, you're making the wrong decision, you're not doing the right thing, I can't do, can't do anything about it. So the, the context of most of this discussion in Jewish thought is very interesting. The place where it's written most about is in the context of a, what we call a pious fool. There's a person who doesn't want to break the Shabbos, or who doesn't want to eat on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the doctors are telling him, if you don't do this certain action on Shabbos, or if you don't eat on Yom Kippur, you will die. You need this nutrition. And there's no question that if there's a, if there's a, you know, a, a discrepancy between eating on Yom Kippur or dying, we for sure say you have to live. Living overrides just about everything else in the Torah. So therefore, you would definitely have to live. So if somebody says, I don't want to, I don't want to eat on Yom Kippur, it's too, it's too holy to me, I don't want to eat. But tell them, you're, you're making the wrong decision, right? That's the question. But let's say he's saying that. So now can we go ahead and can we coerce him to eat? Or can we coerce him to break the Shabbos or whatever other, you know, officially forbidden action it would be, but that's supposed to be broken in order to facilitate life? Can we coerce him to do that? So this point has endless amounts of, of writing on this question. I'll just bring out two, two scenarios that are very interesting case studies on this topic. One ancient and one recent. There's a, if you look at a, at a Talmud, so the middle of the page is the Talmud itself, is the Gemara. On the inside of the page is Rashi, or Shlomo Yitzchaki, and on the outside of the page is the commentary of Tosafos, or the Tosafist. Now, Tosafos was composed of many different authors. It wasn't one person. It was compiled over a hundred years, more or less, with different authors. One of those authors went by the name of Riva. Riva is an acronym for Rabbi Yitzchak Ben, meaning the son of Asher. 
Now, it's brought down in, it's documented in different books that Vayitzak ben Asher was of very, very weak health. He was approaching Yom Kippur, and the doctor told him, you have to eat or you're going to die. And he said, I would rather die than eat, and so happened. He refused to eat, and he died because of that. This was a great sage whose commentary we learn all the time, and a lot of people are bothered by it seemingly clear that the appropriate ethical position is that eating overrides, for, I mean, that saving life overrides fasting and Yom Kippur. So what was his, what, what was he thinking? What was he doing? There's a lot of answers thrown out, but this is a, a very real question. They, they, they didn't, I mean, they didn't treat him in any way of considered like a suicide or anything like that, but it's a, it's a big question on him, how exactly he was able to do that. A second more modern case, which is also a very interesting case, is a uh, more controversial, um, more controversial, but it's still controversial. It's the case of Kurtem versus the state of Israel. Israel has slightly different autonomy policies than America. It's more or less the same. It's not doesn't follow the Torah law, but it's uh, it's more European. But the the main difference is they also both autonomy. They have a little more of a reliance on retroactive consent than we do in America. So there's more leeway to do an act, do something to the patient, assuming he's going to retroactively consent to it, which in America wouldn't go the same way. So the case, this case was, it was a Cortem was a suspected drug dealer, and basically what the state did, or I think the state did, was they they forced him to have surgery, and they took out of his stomach two bags of heroin. So now this, the state then I don't know exactly what these kind of bags. I don't know exactly how, how it would work, but they took out of someone two bags of heroin, and the, the, the state used this heroin as evidence against him in regards to the drug dealer. Kortam claimed that, I never consented to that surgery, you were never allowed to take that out of me in the first place, and that is not valid evidence in the court of law, since it was obtained through illegal means. This case went to the Supreme Court in Israel, and the Supreme Court ruled, again, this ruling is not necessarily based on the Torah, but it's just an interesting case to think about, the Supreme Court ruled that since he would have died otherwise. The reason why he would have died is not because he was in actually grave danger of dying at the time, but had either one of those bags of heroin burst, it would basically immediately kill him. So therefore, it was considered legal to coerce him to have that surgery. Since it was legal to coerce him to have that surgery, it's now considered legal evidence against him in the court of law. And that was how it was answered. This is like a, um, an often brought up case even in American literature in regards to patient autonomy in these types of situations, Kurtem versus State of Israel. But that's, that's what was done in, in that case. So the question is, what's with our case? Yeah, our case again, do, do we have the ability to force her, and we can really ask this question in two ways. She has a personal obligation to heal herself. Can we force her to do her obligation? Nothing to do with me. Can I force her, you have this obligation, can I force you to do your obligation? Then there's a second question is, let's say I can't force her to do her obligation, but I have my own personal obligation. I have an obligation to save another person. So if I have an obligation to save someone, that's irrelevant of her obligation to save herself. Even if I can't force her because of that, I might have my own obligation, nothing to do with, with, with her at all. Okay, we're all good. So I start with the first one. Can we force her to do her obligation. So the official answer is yes, but practically the, the official, uh, and when a Torah law rules the land, there are certain um, abilities that the court system, which is called Sanhedrin, has to enforce 
um, certain commandments being observed properly. One of those commandments is safeguarding your life. In this situation, you are allowed to force her to, um, to take the life-saving treatment that would allow her to, to do that. In America, we don't have a Torah law that's running the books here. We're, we're subject to American law, and not only that, but there's, there's an obligation within Torah, we hold what's called Dina de Machusa Dina, which means the law of the land is the law. We're obligated to follow the law of the land that we live in. We are obligated to follow American law. So therefore, if let's say, um, we'll get back to that in a second, but are we, we're not necessarily allowed to go force her to do her obligation if that would be against American law. So now in this specific case, we'll get, in this specific case obviously it wasn't because American law itself decided that, that she was able to. But that's, that's the question. Now the question is, in terms of our obligation, are we, doctors, able to coerce our patients to do it, to break Shabbos, to eat on Yom Kippur, or to take a chemotherapy that's necessary for her. Just to, just to point out exactly the, the level of therapy we're talking about, the, the, I couldn't find online, a lot of, in terms of Jewish law, a lot of it depends on the risks involved versus the rate of success. Like there's a certain very practical, statistical importance to effect. So I couldn't find anywhere in any of the documents what exactly the risks of the chemotherapy were. Everyone was talking about how it has a high percentage of success rate, but it didn't really discuss anywhere the, the risks of, of the chemotherapy. So I, I emailed Dr. Yusuf, that was one of the questions I asked him. Most of the questions I asked him, he told me it's a violation of HIPAA, so he can't answer me. But um, this one he was able to answer, and he said that, that I'll read to what he wrote, in general for advanced stage Hodgkin's lymphoma, there's an overall survival after five years of 95%, and as you have correctly quoted, the five-year disease-free survival is 85%. From a toxicity standpoint, the regimen of chemotherapy is extraordinarily well-tolerated. Acute hematologic toxicity is mild. Patients normally begin to grow their hair back during the last four courses. Nausea is minimal to mild and responds to treatment for most. Significant bacterial infection reported on the study that treatment is based on is 0.8%. I am not aware of any literature that has reported a toxic death in the chemo that we use. So the, the risk involved in this case was extremely minimal, right? It was basically, no, you disagree with that? It's, it's pretty minimal, but you, you also have to take into account long-term. What do you mean um, Depending, usually with questions, there's radiation involved. Mm-hmm. Other cancer. Other cancer, cancer later. So other cancer later, um, other cancer later just from, from the drugs, um, sometimes actually they, in this specific case they didn't need radiation in this specific case they didn't have to get to that but, but, at, the same, but at the same time she, it was um, it was untreated it was almost guaranteed death in two years oh, so you're, you're just saying that still but the, the fact she, that she might she talks about it, of course she should take it no 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 please but, uh, you know putting a poison into her body right Right, for sure. So it, it's interesting. The, 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 there's one source, the earliest source on coercion in medicine is actually a Tosefta in Shkolem, which is a, which is a, um, a Tanaic source in times of the Mishnah. 
And it's talking about there, you're collecting the, collecting the, every person in all the Jewish nation gave one half shekel towards the Korban fund, the sacrifices in the, in the temple. And everyone, there was a joint sacrifice from every single person, the whole nation, everyone gave basically, let's take a half a dollar. And through this, the millions of people built up enough money to provide sacrifices for the year. People that didn't give this money, everyone had a personal obligation to provide this half dollar, let's say. Anyone who didn't give this half dollar, when the Torah courts ruled the land, they would go and they would enforce. Everyone has a, a tax of a half a dollar and you have to give this tax. And the, the, the Bryce, the Tanaic source there says that just like a doctor who can force a person who needs a leg amputation to have his leg amputated if it's going to cause him death, so too we can enforce taking the half dollar from, from the person to provide it for the, for the carbon pile. So. This is debatable. A lot of people discuss this. This price is exactly what the context was, exactly what the disease was. The whole context of that is not one hundred percent clear. But definitely, if we're talking about death, and for sure by let's say amputations, where amputations doesn't have any long term effect other than you're missing the limb that you're amput- amputated on. I mean, it doesn't have the same similar things. I, th- I think, as far as I understand, to like other. Am I right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Meaning, it's normally like an isolated place, and when you cut it off from the body, what I understand, the rest of the body still is intact. More or less. So it could be that's not exactly similar to you, but I mean, you're missing, you're missing a leg, right? You're definitely missing something. There's some, there'll be some, there are long term effects in a practical sense, but there's that. many because most of the people that go through amputations are diabetic and it just starts with the ankle and it goes below the knee. I mean, things just keep happening eventually. and then they eventually do die anyway. So that could you're be saying why that, that would happen have whether or not the leg was amputated? How, that, would, that would be even if the leg was. Yes, absolutely, w- because diabetes is a disease of circulation. Right, so, the so disease as you get closer and further from the core, it gets weaker. So it's very know. common for that yeah. scenario, and, and everybody hears about that, and so they form opinions, I don't really want to be chopped up and then end up dying, which is truthfully oftentimes the case. Interesting. Okay, I don't know if it's on the topic, so maybe there are more implications. That was the, the example. Given so, there definitely is. If you're talking about a, a, a life-saving therapy, where you're for sure going to die now, and there's a risk of perhaps getting another problem later, but as for now, for sure, within, I get you. I, I don't know the specifics. I don't know exactly what therapy he was using. I, I couldn't research exactly what the long-term effects of it are. But that's why I asked him. Accordingly, he said it is that it's a specifically light type that um, Hopkins lymphoma, the specific form they use, is pretty light. So for sure, from that perspective, it would be that that um, it, it's pretty clear that they. They would have the ability to enforce that. Definitely, the default opinion in the Torah, in the Torah is, is that God entrusted you with your body. You're obligated to take care of that. If you are not taking care of that, the doctor himself has an obligation to save your life, and he also can force you to take care of that. Now, there's, and that would be the, the, the background to approaching any case. Obviously, this as a, uh, an aside, the way every single case has different variables and different cases, and you need to judge each case. Differently, but as a just kind of a, a, a guideline, there's three limitations to this rule of coercion. Seemingly, at face value, coercion is fine since it's life-saving, and assuming that that's 100% true. Right? If there's a difference of opinions amongst doctors, everything we're taking, we're saying right now, falls apart. We're talking about a case like this where every single doctor that saw it, and she went to three opinions, skeptics and doctors. Every doctor agreed this is the night, the right therapy that she needs to do, and when everyone agrees to that, then you for sure, would have to do that in Jewish law. Now, there's three limitations to coercing a patient in, in, in Jewish law. The first one is stated by Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And if you read his, his a, a few different um, responses on this topic, 
And he mentions a new aspect, and this aspect is the psychological trauma that a person who's forced to do something uh, has as an effect of being forced to do it. And he writes so that the effect of the, of, the, of the trauma is often just as great, I don't know exactly what disease he was talking about, but it's just as great as the disease itself. And if we're going to go in and we're going to force them to do something, they're going to be fighting us, they're going to be against it, and they're not going to accept the treatment, and they're going to be making it not work properly, it's very possible that the patient will die anyways because they don't want this, this treatment, in which case you're now actively making the patient die as opposed to letting them passively die on their own from the disease. So Rabbi Feinstein, and he almost, in, 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 almost across the board will forbid you to do um, any aspect of coercion without informed consent, not because you need to inform the patient, but just because it's counterproductive to actually force the patient to do it. Now, I asked Dr. Isikoff if that standard procedure and whether or not they went through a, how exactly had a psych analysis in the situation and how they figured she would come across with it, and he told me he can't respond because of HIPAA, so I don't know exactly how much they took into account the specific aspects of psychological trauma in her case or not. She's out of, she's out of, of, of the hospital now. She said, I, mean, she, I think she is seeing a psychologist from things I've read, and she has experienced some trauma, but it doesn't seem like it's some life threatening trauma that's going to necessarily be with her long term, assuming that her cure does last and she's able to continue. So that's limitation number one, which really limits almost all cases of coercion. That you, need, you need consent in order for it to be helpful for the patient. Rabbi Feinstein does write, there's actually a fascinating law in the law of doctors that a patient is actually obligated to see the best doctor treat him available, which means that you really should discover the best doctor and send all of your patients to the best doctor for this thing. The problem with that is if everyone went to one doctor, we would never function. So the rabbis gave basically anyone who's approved by an official board of medicine, which nowadays all doctors are, is a certain level of trust that this person is capable of above that level of the best doctor, what they were looking for. They meant a trained, knowledgeable doctor. However, if there are multiple doctors available, you need to move the patient over to another doctor. So Rabbi Feinstein writes that if you're incapable of convincing a patient who needs a life-saving therapy, that you're clearly not the best doctor for this patient, you should try to find them a doctor who will be able to speak with them in a better way and be able to relate to them, to, con to convey to them the greatness of life and how they should definitely help save themselves. That's limitation number one. Limitation number two is twofold. One, the, there's a law on the land. And we're not allowed to be criminals, as Jews are obligated to follow the law of the land. If we're living in America, we have to follow American law. If American law states that you're forbidden to um, coerce a patient into a certain surgery, and you're doing it anyways, and you're held accountable for criminal action, that inherently is, it justifies you not doing it, because we're obligated to keep the land of the law. In addition to that, you're not obligated to lose your practicing license to save a person. Meaning you're now, if you would do this, you would never be able to practice again in America, you would never have any livelihood anymore, and you basically would destroy your professional life. You're not obligated to risk that much to help a patient who's doing the wrong thing. So that's another limitation, which again, most situations in modern day America, if you're dealing with an adult above the age of 18, who chooses to refuse life-saving therapy, in most situations it would be criminal to force them to do anything, and you would lose your license. This would also apply in almost all situations. The, the third limitation is Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Orbach writes, he's talking about a case there of a terminally ill patient who was blind and had multiple heart and lung problems. He already had one leg amputated and the doctor said he needs to amputate the other leg. 
Um, so he, he couldn't handle it. He didn't want the pain of another amputation. He didn't want to be a double amputee. He, didn't, he was anyways terminal. He, he wasn't interested at all. Well, that said, it will extend his life for however much time it was. So they asked Orbach, what is the, can we coerce him? Should we force him? Or how should we approach this situation? And he said that if it's an anyways terminal patient and is an, a, a major surgery with a lot of pain, you cannot coerce him to do it. Now, these are the basic three limitations, which in a practical sense will limit autonomy in almost all situations. If we would apply it back to our case, each of these three, so Rabbi Orbach's reason of is for sure doesn't apply because he was talking about terminal patient. She would die without this, but with this, she has a full life expectancy. Maybe there would be some difficulties, but as far as I know, there was a full life expectancy afterwards. The second answer, breaking American law or losing your license, obviously is not true. The Supreme Court ruled that they were allowed to, and he didn't lose his license. And the third aspect of my finding is it's very hard to know exactly how to place it. The, the psycho trauma of this specific case, I don't know exactly. It would seem to me that I assume they did do testings like this before they approached anything in terms of forcing someone to. I mean, they couldn't do. There's two types. You could either do it through, I think, through your heart or with a regular, a regular um, needle in, uh, in the vein, intravenous, right? I believe they tried intravenous. Right? What's it called? Uh, what's it called? But any what? No, so they tried to make that V. That didn't work because she had weak veins. It was they had to put in a, a central line. Central line. A central line. So they had to put it, which is more invasive and more uncomfortable. And I'm sure I'm, I'm assuming that before they did this, they had proper psychological. You know, I don't know exactly what they did. I'm not sure exactly how they held it, hold her down, or eventually she did. I don't know the practical things of how exactly put out. But I assume they tested for them. If that would be true, then according to Rabbi Feinstein, it would it would come out. Totally, totally fine as well. So it would seem that the, the Torah law would, in this situation, agree. And the truth is that as a, as a final law in the Torah of whether or not you can coerce payment, although the, the practical endpoint is basically more or less going to be the same as America, because you're bound by American law. So if American law gives you that autonomy, you kind of are stuck with it. In addition, with my fines and everything else, it's extremely rare that you're able to, but where it'll really practically make a difference is nowadays a lot of doctors, people that I've met before, you can tell me how you find in your practices, are very open to not even really trying to explain to a patient that you know your life is online and your life is valuable and you should try to do what you can. It's just kind of if you want to not do this, fine, go ahead, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. The only place where I guess Judaism would really in a practical sense nowadays differ on that is a doctor will try to take more of an approach of explaining to the patient that they have this great gift of life and there's a tremendous value to it, and trying to not obviously physically coerce them, but to explain to them that this, you know, this is the ethically appropriate thing to do. And just as one last last point on this, this our specific case, as far as I know, is not talking about a Jewish patient. I, I don't have Fortin is her mother's name. It doesn't sound very Jewish last name. I don't know. Probably she was. So this would apply for a Jew and for an Andrew in this specific case. There's a even in terms of her personal obligation. A non-Jew is commanded the seven Noahide laws. One of the Noahide laws is murder. And suicide does fall under, for sure in regards to this, it, um, it falls under the category of murder. So, not treating a highly treatable disease. You can debate whether that's really technically called suicide or not. It could be suicide is only when you're more active in the process. So not here, it's more of a passive suicide. You're allowing it to kill yourself. But it would seem to me that under the Noahide laws of Keeping your, of, of not killing yourself, you'd be obligated to 
uh, issue healing also. And if that's true, so then she would have that obligation for herself. And the doctor, who I think of more probability being Jewish, um, Michael Isakov. Could be. So him for, him for sure would seem to have the, the obligation to help her save herself. Okay, thank you very much. There's definitely a lot more in terms of the last part of it, but it's like a whole discussion of itself. We're going to do, but it's very interesting in terms of medical decision making for a minor. But I don't think we have time for that tonight. But any questions anyone wants to know? In the last just returning a lost object, if the person that lost the object is not doing anything or interested, is he still an obligation to return the object? Because we're deriving, because we're deriving the obligation of the doctors to heal based on that. You don't have any obligation if the guy is not interested in getting it. So, everyone who has Salman said, Salman said a great thing. There's a Minchaschinach. Minchaschinach is what, 1700s? Minchaschinach writes, the great rabbi, so he writes that if the source of, of, of restoring health is returning a lost object, let's say somebody intentionally loses an object. What do you mean? They're driving in their car and they throw out the window their watch. Right? And then you see them, they threw it out the window. That's what's called an intentionally lost object, meaning. He relinquished ownership over it. He gave up on it. He doesn't want it anymore, right? So if that's the source of restoring health, maybe we should apply that same logic. And just like if you intentionally lose an object, you don't have to return it to the guy anymore. So too, if someone's intentionally losing their health, you shouldn't be obligated to help them. That argument is made by the Minchas Chinach and by the Chacham Shlomo. There are two rabbis that hold that opinion, but just about everybody else known, and definitely all the major codifiers of Jewish law don't agree with that opinion. And especially since there's another prohibition of don't stand by idly, so that would, you wouldn't help that, meaning each one of them both coexist. So it would, the logic is a good logic, and there are those that say it, but definitely in the practical sense, we, we, don't, we don't rely on that. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Jew podcast and for taking the time to study Torah and deepen your connection to Judaism. If you found value in today's episode, please leave us a rating or review and subscribe to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or topic requests for Rabbi Moshe, please email thethinkingjewpodcast at gmail.com or visit thethinkingjew.com.